Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is podcast number 35 and our series in the second half of U.S. history as we continue our discussion on World War II. In this 35th podcast, focusing on nothing but the Pacific theater as the Americans, along with our allies, fight to defeat Japan. In the 34th podcast, that was largely dominated by the discussion of D-Day with the eventual American landing, not only in North Africa, but as well as Italy, and then later in Normandy, France, bringing Hitler to a, to Hitler's regime to fall by May 8th, 1945. But again, the military campaigns continued. However, it would be in the Pacific theater. Unlike fighting a, an enemy on land, however, not every Japanese-occupied island had to be overtaken one after the other. It would only be if the island was of significance would the Allies take and invest any effort in human power and weaponry and other munitions in order to try to occupy the island. Soldiers that fought, though, in the American, excuse me, in the European theater of war were horrified to learn how differently the Japanese fought. Differently in the sense that they found out quickly that the Japanese in their minds were not fighting human beings. They were fighting vermin. As James Bradley discusses in his book, Flyboys, he describes on page 55 when a new Japanese recruit would come in and be responsible for 20 soldiers that he would lead in the way that this young Japanese, now new army lieutenant, was shocked by what he saw. As he later learned, a dehumanized enemy as Bradley begins on the bottom of page 55, is easy to kill. And Japanese soldiers were instructed that they were not dealing with humans, but, quote, devils. As the last stage of Japanese training, Bradley discusses on page 57, quote, we made them a bayonet, we made them bayonet a living human. When I was company commander, this was used as a finishing touch to training for the men and a trial for their courage as as officers. Prisoners were blindfolded and tied to poles. The soldiers dashed forward to bayonet their target. Some stopped on their way. We kicked them and made them do it. After that, a man could do anything easily. 
it got to the point that Japanese soldiers would try to see if they could bayonet a human prisoner of war no less than 13 times and still see if they could trace, find a trace of a heartbeat because it was forbidden to bayonet a prisoner in the heart. The idea was to elongate the torture and the inhumane treatment while still reading a pulse as long as possible. If nothing more, if you're able to get your hands on the book Flyboys, go look at the image on page 149. And that one picture will describe the Japanese training pretty much in its entirety. As a Japanese soldier posing for the picture so proud because he had just finished training and his trophy for finishing training properly will be seen in his hand where he is holding the severed head of the POW that he had bayoneted no less than 13 times and still found a pulse. So this is a very different enemy that the allies are going to be fighting. As it was, many islands such as Chichijima would not initially initially need to be taken over. But other islands, specifically like the volcanic island of Iwo Jima, would definitely need to be taken over as that island was the last defense of the Japanese mainland and it had to be taken at the by the Allies at any cost. And you know where I'm going with this. If it had to be taken by the Allies at any cost, how do you think the Japanese are going to be defending that island? You got it at any cost. The island itself, for the battle for the island, was scheduled to last no more than five days. But it would take over 36 days to secure that island. And that initial five-day estimate turned out at, at first to be overestimated. Because while the Allies, as we bombed the island ahead of time and then did our own surveillance, we estimated that the island would see no less than 13,000 estimated Japanese soldiers on the island. But yet when the Americans and our allies landed, the reality soon set in after the most famous picture in all of military history was taken. You know that as the flag raising at Iwo Jima. I know throughout my podcast series, especially if you've been listening to me since the first podcast in World History One, my loyal listeners listening through all of, of World History One and Two, as well as U.S. History One, and now we're in U.S. History Two. Okay, yes, you have my condolences and whatnot. Your penance is done for life. You've heard me recommend many books before, but if you'd like to understand the mindset of the Japanese as well as the Americans and the history behind that most famous pair of, uh, photograph, please get James Bradley's Flyboys. It kills me to not be able to describe that image in detail by identifying the soldiers, but it is not my place to in the sense that, again, Bradley does such a phenomenal job in that, and he had in his case, in his defense, every right to, not that he needs a defense, because his father is prominently pictured raising that flag and that none other than John Bradley. Now, yes, it has come out since James Bradley wrote the book 
that no, it may not have been John Bradley in that exact flag raising, just as it might not have been Harlan Block, who is the furthest soldier to the right, working the bottom of the flagpole into the ground. But that doesn't take away from the soldiers that were in that photograph or the soldiers that were just off to the right, off to the left, or already dead. They were all and should be still considered heroes of their day and through to modern times. That famous flag raising, though, was before the bloody reality set in because the reason that the landing was flawless was because there was no traces of any of the 13,000 estimated Japanese island defenders. The reason being is because the 22,000, not 13,000 defenders, were not on the island. They were in the island. They were underneath. By the time the island, the island would be taken, they would find no less than 1,500 rooms at various levels, two sets of parallel tunnels, a bomb bunker, running electricity, heat, a form of air conditioning. In essence, this was a tiny suburb or a micro city. And that is the reason why it would be a colossal bloodbath with 25,851 casualties, 7,000 dead, and almost all 22,000 Japanese defenders killed. 261 Japanese would surrender. And as Bradley wrote in Flags of Our Father in page 137, it still continued that the almost uh, all soldiers, regardless of origin, tend to utter the same final word in their own language, and that is mother. Despite the effectiveness of the Allies in overtaking Iwo Jima and the other islands, taking back the Philippines and all those other southern island nations, it was still appearing to be more and more inevitable that the invasion of the Japanese island itself was going to have to happen. And that would be set up as Operation Olympic on November 1st, 1945. And you might say, well, wait a minute. I don't remember an Operation Olympic. And right, because it didn't need to happen because of the products that came out of the Manhattan Project. But before we get there, please note that while the Allies met for the final time at the Yalta Conference in February of 1945, we continued our demand. Germany, still two months or three months away to falling, but we didn't know that, as well as the Japanese, that they have to surrender at all costs, and it has to be a complete unconditional surrender. Back in the American home front, too, Franklin Roosevelt, who was already suffering from congestive heart failure, died at 1.02 p.m. on April 12, 1945, when he took his hand and put it at the back of his head and said, I feel a terrific pain, and then he fell forward. It was a moment, a tr truly a moment of unnecessary soap opera drama for the Roosevelt family because Roosevelt died just feet from his mistress, a woman that he had promised his wife that he would never see again many years before. And it turns out that Franklin Roosevelt had been seeing Lucy Mercer throughout 
the war and even before, long after he promised his wife Eleanor he would never see the woman again. Eleanor, your own, how one's heart cannot go out to her, shocked, saying, no, wait a minute. Rosa Franklin wasn't even home. He was down in White Springs, Warm Springs, Georgia. Nobody even knew of that place. Yes, Lucy knew of it. And Lucy was able to get down there. How, Eleanor bellowed, would the two of them be able to meet without my knowledge? And that's because it was set up by their daughter. Can you imagine that Thanksgiving dinner later on that year? It was his daughter that's or their daughter that set up the rendezvous between the two. So Roosevelt dies, our relatively new vice president of the United States from Missouri, Harry Truman, comes into the Oval Office and learns about the Manhattan Project in its entirety for the first time. It is in less than three months that he will have to make a decision that if those bombs end up being successful, would he drop those on J in Japan? Well, again, by that point, Germ uh, Germany had already surrendered on May 8th, and the success at Trinity, July 16th, 1945, at 45 seconds into the 29th minute of the fifth hour of that day, the United States had detonated at a site called codenamed Trinity, the world's first atomic bomb. The nuclear genie was now out of the bottle. And once out, as we know, military genies never go back in the bottle. To give you just a quick sneak preview of what and how this weapon was so unbelievably different from every other weapon devised in the, by the human race. Listen to Stephen Walker in his book called Shockwave, Countdown to Hiroshima, where he writes at the bottom of page 64, quote, 50 miles north of ground zero, an 18-year-old girl, was traveling in the front seat of her car next to her brother-in-law, Joe Willis, end quote. Now this again, this, this excerpt is taken on the morning of July 16, 1945 in New Mexico. Quote, the girl's name was Georgia Green and Joe was driving her to an early morning music lesson in Albuquerque. They still had some way to go. As they passed the town of Lemitar, Along an empty Highway 85, a flash of extraordinary brilliance suddenly filled the landscape. Georgia grabbed her brother-in-law's arm. What was that, she cried. But Joe could only stare at his sister-in-law because Georgia Green was blind. A blind woman literally saw the first detonation of a nuclear blast. Now, while blind, of course, she saw nothing more. But what her brother-in-law, Joe Willis, did see is accounted on the very next page. Not that he knew what he was looking at. As, as Stephen Walker goes on to write, quote, the ro it rose from the desert like a second sun, a searing 
brilliant, expanding ball of fire. And it struck terror into everyone who saw it. In the first millisecond, it resembled something horrifyingly alien, a giant, fleshy, brain-like shape with shooting points of fire in the skies split before it. In that same millisecond, the very instant of its birth, the temperature at its core was 60 million degrees centigrade, 10,000 times hotter than the surface of the sun, and its blinding flash was far brighter. This is just a sample of what we could drop on the Japanese islands if they don't surrender. Later on, Truman, President now President Truman, who was at the Potsdam, Germany conference, would be told in code that mom delivered the baby and it weighed far more than they expected. In other words, the, the, the Trinity was a success and the bomb delivered more explosive power than they had anticipated. Please know, listeners, there was no exact knowledge of just how devastating bringing those two halves of uranium together at relatively lightning speed would do that we didn't know how far the fireball would expand. We didn't know how long it would last. We didn't know 100% if it would have more negative reactions with different elements of the atmosphere. Would the massive expansion of fire consume the oxygen in the air for untold number of miles? Nobody knew. But remember again, we're at war and we have a war to win. So while at the Potsdam conference, President Truman revealed the atomic bomb first to the British and then to the Soviet Union. And that's when again Joseph Stalin felt put out because he had already known about the success of Trinity because of spies he had on the ground before Truman had even told him. That again would just add to the dissension, to the tension and the distrust between the two world leaders. There were immediately warnings sent to Japan, first written in Japanese and then translated. Leaflets would be dropped over the major cities that this particular city could be the first one targeted of an atomic blast. We issued more and more stern warnings for the remainder of July and the beginning of August, but all of them were ultimately rejected. Truman therefore decided to use the bomb against the Japanese, the first one to be dropped in the early morning hours of August 6, 1945. Please note that when the famous Enola Gay B-29 bomber took off with that 9,000-pound bomb in its belly. It had been the first, that was the first successful takeoff with that overweight B-29. The four practice planes before it that were weighed down with the same amount of weight, all four of them crashed upon takeoff. But the president, the commander-in-chief, gave his order, drop it, ASAP. 
And that's when Paul Tibbetts, also of Columbus, Ohio, heeded those orders and ordered the plane to be stripped of almost every anti-aircraft weapon and even an additional extra gas tank in order to lighten the load. But even then, he wasn't sure if the B-29, if that runway on Tinian Island was indeed long enough to get that bird into the air with now the world's most powerful weapon. After it dropped the Japanese over Hiroshima, the Japanese did not surrender. A rough translation to English of the Japanese response is, we do not know if the bomb was atomic or not. Listeners, with the way the beautiful prior untouched city of Hiroshima could be blackened and turned into an oversized parking lot in the blink of an eye, it doesn't matter what the bomb was made out of. Number one, you, Japan, do not have that type of weapon at your disposal. Two, even if you did, you cannot get a plane off your grounds without being shot down. You can't get a ship out of your harbors or a submarine from your harbors without being sunk. You are done. And we just vaporized one of your cities in the blink of an eye. Surrender. They didn't. To give you an idea again, to to shorten the podcast length, I encourage you to go to a website called nuclearsecrecy.com backslash, excuse me, forward slash nuke map. In other words, again, repeat, nuclearsecrecy.com forward slash nuke map, N-U-K-E-M-A-P. There you can choose to drop the weapon that we dropped over Hiroshima over any zip code, actually over any exact address in the United States and see how devastating that weapon would have been in terms of casualties. And if that's not enough to make your skin crawl, you also can change the size of the detonation or the size of the bomb to the largest nuclear weapon ever actually devised, which was then by the Soviet Union, the Bomba. And look at what that would do to your hometown or whatever location you put in there. But go back to Hiroshima, the little boy bomb. That's what we dropped over the Japanese on August 6th. August 7th, 8th, no response, no surrender. On August 9th, we dropped the second bomb, of course, this time over Nagasaki. It would only be then the Japanese tipped their hand that they are ready to surrender. Please note that one of the reasons the Japanese willed to fight on is because there were still Japanese people alive to fight. No, not soldiers any longer, but elderly and young children able to fight. But the second bomb sealed that fate. This is the reason why an Allied invasion was estimated over 1 million soldiers killed and or wounded if Operation Olympic had to take place on November 1st, 1945. To give you an idea how many casualties we anticipated, 
we started creating Purple Hearts for soldiers that earned them a daring, just daring, Operation Olympic. Needless to say, we would not use one of those Purple Hearts. They went into storage. Those Purple Hearts were then pulled back out. And every American soldier who earned the Purple Heart through all of the Korean War, through all of the entire Vietnam War, and into Desert Storm, received a Purple Heart that was created for a soldier that was going to fight in Operation Olympic. That just gives you a quick insight into how many casualties we anticipated. On August 15th, Japan ceased all military operations. The formal surrender took place on the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 1945, exactly 1,364 days since December 7th, 1941 when they attacked Pearl Harbor. Please note that unlike the way the Japanese had treated the Koreans, the Chinese, the Filipino, and every other race of people that they had conquered and treated them with every level of inhumanity, we treated the Japanese people with dignity, as did our allies. In his book, To America, look up the story by Stephen Ambrose on page 216, where he writes about how an American soldier there in Japan shortly after the occupation began and how he befriended a Japanese teenager that between the American soldier and the Japanese boy, the two of them would create two teams that would regularly play baseball in the late summer of 1945 in Japan. So that brings an end now to the Second World War, not only in the European theater that was concluded in the last broadcast, but also, of course, in the second year in the Pacific pod, Pacific theater, excuse me, as well. In the next podcast, which will be the last one in our series of American History 2, but in our mini-series on World War II, I'm going to get into the specific reasons for the Allied victory with some hard facts and numbers that will help explain the impact of America's influence and why we were destined to win the war. And then I am also going, therefore, to finish I know it's with something that I covered in the second half of my world history series, but it bears to be and is required, in my opinion, to be repeated in the, after the conclusion of the Second World War. And that's the elephant in the room that I haven't been discussing much in this mini-series on the Second World War. And that, of course, was the Holocaust. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, C.E. Kinsella, and email me with any questions or comments you might have, or especially book recommendations. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.